Well, good morning, Genesis House. Let's stand reading Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do you deal treacherously, each against his brother, so that as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any ruin who awakes and answers, or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit, and let no one deal treacherously against his wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Let's pray. Father, we come to you with asking for wisdom. Wisdom that does not come from man, but comes from your spirit. And the issues facing marriages from the first day of the created creation in the garden till now are virtually identical. Uh, men, after sin fell into the world through Adam and Eve, hasn't really changed in the marital issues that we face. And we know it's a rampant part of our churches that uh, there's often not, sadly, there's often not much difference in the world's marriage versus the Christian marriages in the home. And so we are looking for wisdom in terms of how you want us to operate and what you want us to do as followers of you. So I know last week we had a our first part in the series of marriage and divorce and we ask you for your wisdom in dealing with the second part today from your words from Malachi and just uh, help us have a, an encouraging time too. Sometimes these topics can be heavy and personal but they also can be in time of encouragement knowing that you have a design for our lives that is perfect and it's just up to us to follow and trust you in those in that perfection. So pray for our time together in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today we're continuing in our three-part series on divorce and remarriage. We'll do one more from 1 Corinthians 7 uh, fairly soon. But you'll remember from last week we spent our time looking at Jesus' teaching in Matthew 19. And our big takeaway from last week's sermon was this. That Jesus forbid divorce and remarriage for any spouse unless one was the victim of adultery. Unless one was the victim of adultery... And even in those circumstances, reconciliation would be God's preferred choice. That was the big takeaway from Matthew 19. But I did leave you with a question when I ended the sermon. Would there ever be a time in which a spouse who was a victim of adultery could be free to pursue divorce and still be acting in a godly manner? 
That's the question we're going to tackle today. And I believe it's a very important one because of what God says in verse 16. He says, for I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. He absolutely hates it. So if God hates it, why even bother asking that question that we just asked? Wouldn't the answer be an obvious no? He must hate it, even when you're the victim? Well, I actually believe the answer is yes. There is a time that you can. And we're going to unpack what's going on in the context of Israel in Malachi's day to see that God does not view all divorce equally. So he hates divorce, yes. But there's a time in which he actually um, doesn't hate it. But we have to look at the context of Malachi to understand it. So let's dive in. What's going on in the time of Israel? Well, Malachi tells us it was a very treacherous time in the land of Israel. Look at, it occurs five times in this passage. Look at me with, at verse 10. Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother? Look at verse 11. Judah has dealt treacherously and abomination has been committed in Israel. Look at verse 14. Is because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against him whom you have dealt treacherously. Look at verse 15, starting halfway down. It says, Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. And then in verse 16, he says, So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. It's a treacherous time in the land of Israel, can you tell? Now, there's really two accusations that God has against Israel in this context. He defines their behavior very clearly in these verses. First of all, in verse 11, the problem here is that they're entering into mixed marriages. The Jewish people are entering into mixed marriages and marrying foreign wives. And in verse 14, the second issue is they're divorcing their wives for reasons other than sexual morality to take on these foreign wives. So the, the Jewish men are divorcing their Jewish wives for reasons other than sexual morality in order to take on Canaanite wives. And these are two issues. So let's look at the first allegation, this issue of dealing with mixed marriages. And let's read 11 to 12 together. Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and he has married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who wakes and answers or presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. At first read in, this, in these two verses, one might think that God is accusing Israel of idolatry because they're marrying, quote-unquote, a foreign god. But if you actually look at this, it says he's marrying the daughter of a foreign god. The daughter of a foreign god. So again, this is a reference to the Israelite men divorcing their wives in order to take on Canaanite women to be their wives. And this has God concerned for a couple different reasons. First one is strictly this. The law forbade it. The law forbade it. Look at Deuteronomy 7 with me. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, we are entering to possess it, and clear as many nations away before you, you shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. 
So the law forbid inter intermarriages with the, with the um, foreign women. But the issue for God was not their ethnicity. Wasn't that the fact that they were Canaanite per se. You remember Boaz? Who did he marry in the book of Ruth? He married a Moabite woman named Ruth. Okay, so in marrying Canaanite women in, its, in and of itself because of the nationality was not God's problem. His problem was with the religious beliefs and ideologies and practices that these women brought into the marriage that were associated with their pagan worship of the gods that they worshipped. That was his problem. It was their religious beliefs and how they're going to influence the men was his issue. And I, did, I left this verse, this verse out intentionally because after he says in Deuteronomy 7.4, not to marry, he says this. Here's why. They will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Don't marry these women. Not because they're not Jewish, but because of the, what they believe is non-Jewish women. They will, go, they will fall, make you turn against me, and they, you will want to worship their gods instead of, my, instead of me. Now, the second reason this was a concern, not only because the law forbid it, it was based on Israel's history. See, in the book of Malachi, he picks up in the book of Malachi a hundred years later after Israel has come out of Babylon. So Israel went into slavery or into captivity for what? Idolatry, for worshiping the gods of the Canaanite lands. A hundred years later, what are they doing? They're setting the table for yet again more worship of these false gods because the women's influence that they're picking up in these remarriages are going to shape their hearts to go that way. So they're setting the table for this and, and God wants to spare them the pain because he's going to judge them if they do. And he doesn't want them to go through this heartache again. Now, when you think about idolatry and stuff, you might think, oh, there's a little Buddha you know, statue on somebody's doorstep and they might come over as they go to work that morning and rub it on the head and go, may I have like safe passage to Calgary at work today. This is not what's going on in the Canaanite worship. You see, it's horrific. It's horrific. Not only was prostitution part of worshiping these false gods, but the major issue for God was child sacrifice. They would, they would ch sacrifice their children, burn them in fire to these gods. Perhaps one of the saddest passages in all of Scripture, from my point of view, is Jeremiah 19. This is Israel's, the description of Israel prior to Babylon. Prior to Babylon. Look at this. Jeremiah 19. Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Behold, I'm about to bring a calamity upon this place, at which the ears of everyone that hear of it will tingle, because they have forsaken me and have made this an alien place, and have burned sacrifices in it to other gods, that neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah had ever known. And because they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire, as burnt offerings to Baal, a thing which I never commanded or spoke of, nor did it ever enter my mind. You see why God is so troubled by these Israelite men divorcing their Jewish wives to take on Canaanites. They do, he does not want to see this ever occurring in the land of Israel ever again. And these men are set in the table 
for spiritual bankruptcy to occur in Israel. But there's a lesson for us here. And this speaks to those of us in here who are single or are looking to get married. If you profess to be a follower of Jesus Christ, God does not want you marrying anyone who holds a different faith outside of Christianity. Not because he's trying to limit you, but he's trying to protect you. You see, Christians, both young and old, who enter into relationships with non-believers with the intention of marriage, they do so thinking that it's going to be okay and that their love will shape this new person and so on and so forth. And they think they'll influence that person for Christ. Now I recognize, I do recognize in extremely rare cases this happens. I do recognize that. However, that is not the norm. That is not the norm. Nor is it God's counsel. God says, if you do this, it will likely end up in disaster for you. It will be highly unlikely that you will turn them to following me. They will turn you to follow what they believe. Perhaps the greatest example is Solomon. The wisest man ever in the world couldn't resist the beauty and the love of another woman who worshipped these false gods. Look at 1 Kings 11. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonite, Hittite, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. Church, we're not going to see Solomon in glory. You're not going to see Solomon in glory. I'm fairly confident of that. A guy who started off in God's favor because he couldn't resist worshiping their gods. This is the wisest man in the world who couldn't resist the influence of his wives. He was blinded by love and their infatu his infatuation for them. And this is Satan's lie. This is Satan's lie to Christians. There's nobody out there for you. There's nobody out there for you when you're single or want to get remarried if you've been widowed or something. They don't exist. God doesn't want you to be happy. And I know the lie. I lived it. I attended the E-Free Church as a man in my 20s and was there for year after year after year and uh, couldn't find anyone to marry. And the lie was strong in my own life. Go after others, go after others. But eventually, I, I did meet Janice. But that's the lie. So let's take a look now at Malachi's second indictment against Israel in terms of their treacherous behavior. Not only are they, are they uh, going after setting the table for idolatry in their lives and doing, it, doing what God forbid, they were divorcing their wives for reasons other than sexual immorality. They were divorcing their wives for reasons other than adultery. Look at verses 13 through 15. This, off, this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? 
because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit, and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. What's happening here is that these men, these Israelite men, are coming, bringing offerings and sacrifices to the Lord, which was commanded by them in the Old Testament. So they're, they're obeying God in terms of the law. But they're coming with all sorts of emotions and weeping because they know that God isn't listening to them. They know that God is rejecting them. In verse 13 it says uh, they, that God no longer regarded their offerings or accepted them with favor. So what these men are doing is they're coming weeping and groaning before the altar trying to invoke God's response. If he only sees my tears, he'll, I know he'll notice me. And so they're, they're going to all sorts of kind of crazy of emotion trying to invoke God to, to look at them with favor and to care about them. And they recognize that God had rejected them. They knew it. And so they ask the question, why? Why has he rejected me? Why, did, why won't he take, accept my offerings? And so God spells it out for them. He says, the reason I'm not listening to you is you're dealing treacherously with your wives. You're divorcing your Jewish wives for reasons other than sexual immorality in order to replace them with Canaanite women. And God says, what are you doing this for? She's your companion from youth. You have a covenant with her. And God is saying, this is treacherous behavior and I hate this kind of divorce. I hate that kind of divorce. This is super important, church, in understanding the context of what's going on. This is, a kind of, this is a clear picture of the kind of divorce that God hates. It's when there's no adultery going on, there's no sexual morality, but this is a person divorcing their spouses for any reason at all because they just want to get rid of them because they can't get along with them. Or they have petty issues or whatever. Isn't that similar to reminiscent of Matthew 19 last week? The Pharisees come to Jesus, can we get divorced for any reason at all? Jesus says, nope. But if, you, if there's sexual morality, if there's adultery, then you can get divorced. And consider remarriage. Here again, in Malachi's day, 400 years prior to Jesus even being alive in terms of the human incarnation, then he says, my problem with you, the kind of divorce I hate Israel, is that you're divorcing your spouses for reasons other than sexual morality. And why is this important? Well, I think you're catching up. Because if God hates all divorce equally, if He hates it all equally, then actually He Himself would be guilty of treacherous behavior. I'll say that again. If God hates all divorce equally, then He Himself would be guilty of treacherous behavior. Now why would that be? Why would that be? Turn with me to Jeremiah 3, 6-9 to find out the answer. Jeremiah 3, verse 6. Jeremiah's after Isaiah, if you're looking for it. Everyone found it okay? Jeremiah chapter 3, starting at verse 6. Read with me from 6 to 9. 
Then the Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and she was a harlot there. I thought, after she has done all these things, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw that for all of the adulterous adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went up and was a harlot also. Because of the lightness of her harlotry, she polluted the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. Yet in spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception, declares the Lord. You notice what God is accusing Israel of here, and Judah as well? They're up to their neck, they're knee-deep in idolatry. And he likens idolatry, the worship of foreign gods, to harlotry and adultery. Look at verse 6 again. Listen to this. The Lord said to me, the days of Josiah, have you seen what faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and under every green tree. This is a reference to idol worship. Uh, you know, the, the carvings and the stones that they made to, of these false gods. And he calls it harlotry. Then you look at verse 9, once again. Because of the lightness of her harlotry, she polluted the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. Again, harlotry and adultery linked with idolatry with stones and trees. See, God defined them as synonymous, this, this adultery with idolatry, because in essence they were cheating on him with a foreign god. So they're cheating on God by worshipping idols. And he says, when you do this and worship other gods, it's the same to me as committing adultery in the human relationship. It's the same thing. And so what's God's response to this? What's God's response to unrepentant habitual adultery? He writes them a certificate of divorce. Verse 8. Now Jeremiah doesn't tell us how long this went on for, but I read a commentary on, from John MacArthur. This was going on for 700 years. <laughs> 700 years of unrepentant habitual adultery in the land of Israel. God didn't write the certificate after the first time. He did it after the ongoing unrepentant adultery. And I think this is so key, church, because when Christians and pastors take the position that God hates all divorce, all divorce, and likens every situation of divorce as being treacherous behavior, whether you're the victim or perpetrator, the problem then is that God is guilty of treacherous behavior. And that's a total conundrum as a Christian because now you're putting God's character under the microscope and saying, He sinned. <laughs> because if God divorces for adultery and it's not linked to treacherous behavior, then for on sorry, yeah, if God divorces for ongoing habitual adultery, it's not linked to sexually or it's not linked to treacherous behavior, then surely in the human relationship when this is going on, we wouldn't be either. And in Malachi, we see it clearly. There's no sexual immorality going on. He hates divorce because there's no reason for it. Except they're in love and factuated with these non-believing women. And they want a new partner. And there's nothing wrong with these Jewish women. Nothing. If anything, it's just what they claim to, claim to be irreconcilable differences. Or they're just preferences. So back to our original question. 
Can we as Christians make a case for lawful divorce when the spouse is engaged in unrepentant habitual adultery? I would say yes, from the scriptures. Not from Andrew Dexter's opinion, from the scriptures. However, even in that case, reconciliation could still be an option. It could still be an option. Can you believe it? Well, you have to believe it because verse 11, look what God says. And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has proved herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words towards the north and say, Return, faithless Israel. Return, declares the Lord. I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity, that you have transgressed against the Lord your God, and have scattered your favors and the strangers under every green tree. And you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless sons, declares the Lord. For I am a master to you, and I will make you, sorry, I will take you from one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. It's an incredible picture of God's grace. 700 years of unrepentant habitual idolatry, and he says this, if you will just acknowledge your sin, I'll take you back. He didn't go off after the certificate and marry another nation. He kept the Jews still his favorite people. He was still open for reconciliation, but they had to admit they were sinners, and they had to be willing to go God's way. There had to be genuine repentance for that to occur, and God would take them back. So could that not be made for a case for us as well? Keeping everything equal in the spiritual parallels? Now I realize, humanly speaking, this would be very, very difficult to do, and very, very difficult to consider. But if we learn anything from God here, even in cases where a person has been a victim of ongoing adultery, reconciliation could still be an option. In other words, just because as a victim you have the right to pursue divorce in such cases, doesn't mean that you need to seek remarriage immediately just because you have that right. Divorce to, to, to show the judgment of sin, and to, and, but doesn't mean you should just automatically look for remarriage. Perhaps you could hold out, a person could hold out and wait to see if they would show any repentance and remorse if God could get a hold of this person's life. Because they're clearly not thinking with God's mind. And remarriage anyways, this is not, this is not necessarily in the scripture, this is just my two thoughts and that's so you can take it or leave it. But I, I would suggest anyway, even if God gives you the green light to divorce in an ongoing habitual adultery, I'd suggest remarriage is not wise, at least for a long time anyway. The reason is, is that I have never personally met anyone who's been a victim of ongoing perpetual adultery that is ready even emotionally or psychologically or spiritually to get remarried. There is so much emotional pain, so much baggage, so many wounds, that to go into another relationship would probably be uh, disastrous. I'm not saying it's 100% for sure, but probably. Just because there's so much healing that's required, and it can impact the next relationship. Let's say the person that person marries is a widow, and they had a fantastic marriage, and you bring in all your hurts, everything that that new spouse will do, you'll be reactive, because you're suspecting, I've lived this life before, and the person may have good intentions in mind, but because of your wounds, you can't see what's actually going on in the relationship. So again, God clearly allows for divorce and ongoing habitual adultery, but he's also clearly open to reconciliation. 
whenever, if Israel was willing to genuinely repent. So what are some lessons we can pick up from here? I suggest there's three. Lesson number one, taken from Malachi. As a Christian, to be unified in marriage with someone else of a different faith is condemned by God, and that relationship will likely lead to the Christian committing apostasy. As a Christian, to be unified in marriage with someone else of a different faith is condemned by God, and that relationship will likely lead to the Christian committing apostasy. He says to Israel in Deuteronomy 7, they will turn your hearts away. Solomon, his life, his, his heart was turned away. And these Israelites were set on the table for their hearts to be turned away to the point that he won't even accept their offerings at the table because he's, like, he's just devastated over these issues. All because he was, Solomon especially, and probably these men too, were just blinded by beauty and love. Infatuation. That's what it was. That's all it would have been. Again, God's out to protect us from this pains, not to hurt us. And I know the belief out there. I lived the lie, and I, li- and I lived it. And again, I know there's exceptions. I, I get it. But we can't base c- cases of exceptions. For example, I know of stories where people have jumped out of a plane and their parachute didn't open, and they hit the ground and, di- and didn't die. That doesn't mean we're all going to then take the chance and not open the chute, right? So I get it. There are exceptions and there's an occasional story, but God clearly in the scriptures condemns it. He condemns it. And Paul does too. 2 Corinthians 6. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? If we are the temple of a living God, as God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be their people. We have God saying this in the Old Testament. We have the Apostle Paul ordained by Jesus Christ to say this in the New Testament. And God says, and Paul says, listen, if you get together, they will likely turn you away from following me. You're not likely going to turn them into following me. And so again, young love, infatuation, believes the opposite. But God is wisdom. In His infinite wisdom, He knows He knows likely what's going to happen. Lesson two: Treacherous treatment of a spouse is when one divorces their spouse for reasons other than adultery. Malachi: I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. What kind? When you divorce your spouse for reasons other than sexual morality in the relationship, I hate it. <clears throat> and that speaks to Okotoks in our culture like absolute crazy. Absolutely crazy. We divorce for reason, just any reason and any reason we want. And we have no problem with it because we feel that we deserve it. And again, he says that's treacherous treatment of your spouse when you do that. Unless, it, unless you're the victim of adultery. And Matthew 19, in last week's sermon, we dealt with that in, in quite strong, with quite strong language. Finally, Unrepentant, ongoing adultery is a legitimate reason for divorce and remarriage. However, even in such cases, reconciliation could still be an option, if at all possible. God says, you're an adulterous harlot nation, you go after stones and trees. Here's a certificate of divorce, I'm done with you. However, return, if 
faithless Israel, but you must repent and you have to go my way. So again, can we get out? Back to the original question from last week. Can we get out of a marriage and be a divorcer, a pursuer of it? In a marriage where we've been cheated on, on an habitual, unrepentant uh, cause? They say, yeah, can. God did it, so we can do it. However, don't get remarried right away. It might, it's probably not wise to do it right away. Just wait. Just wait and see what will happen with that new spouse. Or that, that, that's, that's about new spouse, your, your old spouse. But again, sometimes reconciliation is not possible. If they get remarried right away, you're free. If they die, you're free. Right? And you just never know when that's going to happen. So if you're holding out and it's been three months and they get in a car accident or they happen to die of a heart attack or whatever, you're free to remarry. But even in such cases, it may be wise just to wait until you're emotionally and spiritually whole to be able to give your best in the new relationship. So that's it. That's part two completed. And I'd be very curious to hear your questions and your thoughts. And um, like I said, we're going to do one more part series because not all the questions will have been answered in these two first, first two sermons. So we're going to tackle 1 Corinthians 7 for the third message on, and our final message on marriage and divorce.